0: Hi, and welcome to the Music Box Podcast, where we talk about all things Music Box. That is the Music Box Theater in Chicago. On today's show, we're going to bring in Kyle and Brian from the Music Box Films team, as well as the Music Box Theater. Uh, we're going to ha- we're going to all talk about The King, Silent Cinema, Curtiz, Midnights, and a little history about the Music Box programming because of our guest. And it's a little different today. It's Tuesday morning, so I have my coffee. and we're, we're, we're actually not in the lounge. We're downtown at the Music Box Films office, where our guests reside for their offices. So let's find out who we have.
1: Hi, this is Kyle Westfall. I've been on the show before. I wear a few hats around here, although it's hot this summer, so not too many hats today. Um, I am the theatrical sales coordinator at Music Box Films, and I'm also a programming associate at the
2: theater, uh, working largely on repertory and matinees. And I'm Brian Andriotti, I'm the director of programming at Music Box Theater. And for Music Box Films, I'm the theatrical Theatrical distribution manager, director. Let me get this right. Director of theatrical distribution. <laughs> director of
0: theatrical distribution. It changes so much that okay. I have trouble
2: keeping up with it.
0: All right, that's a big title, there, Brian. Um, so let's find out what are we currently playing at the Music Box Theater. Uh, we had a. Um, oh, I forgot some things. I have show notes, and I can't believe I forgot some of these things. Um, well, we're currently playing a, what I would consider, box office success, a uh, film that everybody just loves. I mean, somebody came up to us and said, this is the best movie I've seen at the music box in years, which I was like, really? Um, but it's Three Identical Strangers. And guess what? If you haven't seen it, we're holding over through July 26th. Has anybody else here seen it? Yes.
1: Yeah, I've seen it. I haven't seen it yet. I, I have to be one of those people who thanks you for holding it through July
2: 26th.
0: You're welcome. Brian, what would you think of it?
2: Oh, I thought it was terrific. Yeah, I was really excited to play this. We had a fight for it. Um, There was, uh, ever since it premiered in Sundance, it was kind of identified as a potential film that could really break out this year. And um, many theaters in Chicago wanted to play it, but we fought very hard to to secure it. And I'm glad we did. You know, it's kind of exceeded my expectations. I I had high hopes. I thought word of mouth might be strong, but um, it opened really great and it's continuing to do well. Um, you know, a lot of people have talked um, recently that there is a trend in the specialized box office world right now of documentaries doing very well. Yeah, I mean,
0: RBG, uh, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and Three three. Right, Medical and now,
2: now three for three. Um, And there's been
0: some other docs. Sorry, other docs. You're doing well, but the the air is sucked up by these documentaries that have passed the million-dollar box office threshold, which makes them a big success.
2: Right. I mean, with RBG and um, Won't You Be My Neighbor, a lot of people are saying that um, we need this film right now because it's about heroes. It's about people doing good things, uh, about bringing people together. Um, This doesn't quite fit that mold, but what makes it so fascinating is that the story is truly unbelievable, you know, the, the cliché that uh, truth is stranger than fiction um, certainly plays out here. And you know, most people probably know the general premise, um, three uh, triplets, um, male triplets were separated at birth and rediscover each other uh, 19 years later. Um, and that's pretty interesting, but that's just, it kind of skims the surface, it just goes on, and there are layer layers after layer, and uh, and so, yeah, it's the kind of film that, as you say, people are talking about, and um, could play through, well, maybe not the music box, but it will play nationwide, I'm sure, through the through the end of the summer.
0: And the more I think about it, if you haven't seen this movie, um, just stop listening about it. Just come in cold, come in blind as much as you possibly can, because you will enjoy every, every direction it goes. Um, we're also uh, playing a movie called American Animals, which we've talked about. Too much. I'm sorry. We, we really, every every week, because we've run it for six weeks, but guess what? It's finally ending, so you're going to hear us stop talking about this movie. It's going to end on Thursday, July 19th. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you have got to help. I mean, if the podcast is in your feed on Wednesday, you got to tell tomorrow night to see it, um, and if you did see it, thanks for coming out and supporting us and seeing some good cinema. Um, then I totally forgot to write this in my show notes but uh we off calendar we opened a movie called eating animals uh which was only a one-week engagement i think i might have mentioned that last week um but so by being in a one-week engagement this one must end on july 19th and um, that was something that brian brought in at the uh last minute because we had the opportunity to play it as well as uh, the filmmaker came out on sunday afternoon for a screening so um yeah was cool yeah Great Glad way we could to fit it in. Yeah, great way to throw a little extra in there. So that's what we currently have on our screens. Let's talk about what's coming up this week. Uh, we've got a great documentary opening called The King. It opens, of course, on Friday, July 20th, with the director in person on uh, Friday night at 7 p.m. and Saturday at 2 p.m. That His name is uh, Eugene Jarecki. Eugene Jarecki. Uh, I didn't see the film. I also didn't book the film, but we have the director of programming finally on this podcast, so he can tell us why
2: he broke sure. The King. Well, speaking of documentaries, we have another very interesting documentary opening Friday. Um, We'll start with the director, Eugene Jarecki. Um, He has won many awards over the years. In fact, he's won two grand jury prizes at the Sundance Film Festival over the year, and many of his films we've played. Um, The Trials of Henry Kissinger uh, was a very successful film that won the grand jury prize. And then um, The House I Live In. Uh, also won the Grand Jury Prize. And so he has a long, very strong career in in documentary filmmaking. His new film, The King, is really ambitious and and, and kind of provocative and and opens itself up to really interesting conversation. Um, On the surface, uh, you could simplify it by saying it's a documentary about Elvis, um, but that is only the surface. Structurally, it's kind of a road show, a road movie. Um, Eugene Jirecki somehow got a hold of uh, one of Elvis's cars, a Roll- Rolls Royce from 1963, and so he came up with the idea of taking this trip across country, kind of following the path of Elvis's career. So it starts in Mississippi, where he was born, and it goes to uh, Memphis, then Nashville. New York, Hollywood, Las Vegas—of course, ending there—and uh, along the way, it retraces Elvis's life. Um, But—and this is the big but—it's um, not just about Elvis. He kind of uses Elvis's life as a metaphor for the country, um, and so he kind of makes this interesting connection um, that suggests that um, his Elvis's transition from a poor country boy to International sensation to um, Las Vegas superstar. Um, can you can translate that or compare that to the, the history of the country um, and its moved from kind of idealized, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, the American idea, the American myth of success, and and where it goes um, over the course of the nation's history. And it's interesting because he filmed this during the 2016 election. And so there's a lot of discussion about contemporary politics and the rise of Trump. Um, and uh, yeah, I think um, I think it's a really interesting film and people are so lucky to be able to meet Eugene Jarecki on opening weekend because there'll be a lot to talk about.
1: And I know that one premiered at Cannes last year in a different cut. There was a bit longer and then it was re-edited um, before... It came out theatrically. Where, where did you see
2: it, or, or what version did
1: you uh, see when you first had a chance to... Yeah.
2: I saw the version that we will be showing. I didn't okay. see the original cut. I think it, can, it was known as the promised land, maybe, um, yeah. but um, it, it was acquired by Oscilloscope Laboratories, and they sent me a link, um, so I saw only the version that we'll be showing.
0: Well, based off of that, uh, I want to see it. <laughs> and uh, hopefully some of our audience wants to see it as well. I do think it's going to be um, a special evening on Friday or Saturday afternoon if you come, because um, as you have said, and I've seen other work by Eugene, he's a great direct, uh, filmmaker and uh um, somebody you want to be in a room with to have a conversation.
2: Yeah, and Eugene is actually in the film himself. He drives the Rolls Royce across the country, and you you see him several times. You you see him and hear him interview uh, the subjects of the documentary. And I should say that he has an interesting lineup of of celebrities and and um, journalists uh, interviewed throughout the film. Um, people like Chuck D, uh, Ethan Hawke. Dan Rather, Alec Baldwin, um, they all kind of give their spin on, on what they think Elvis means to the country and, and how that can be placed against um, America's history. Yeah, well, there you go
0: come out and see it opening July 20th at the Music Box probably gonna run maybe more than a week what do you think Brian
2: oh I think it'll go um, two weeks
0: great yeah okay Um, so the midnights this weekend are The Room and Rocky as you know we play The Room on Friday and The Rocky Horror with The Shadowcast on Saturday Um, it is lining up with what we try to be consistent with which is the third weekend of every month we show these films sometimes that changes because of other programming Um, like next month it will no next month it will be September it won't be but whatever doesn't matter This month, it's the third weekend. It's Friday and Saturday. Um, We've talked about this a few different times, different guests. But we have the guy that brought these into the fold originally. Am I right to Mm. say that you're the one who got us this this these midnights to play consistently at the music box
2: brian well sure i mean i it's not like i discovered these or turned no them no, no. Into i mean cult. i mean
0: to say you started the routine yeah, of playing right. these films sure, consistently because sure. yeah. were they playing before you
2: well you know rocky horror picture show when i first started at the music box way back when um we weren't playing it um i'm not sure how much it played in the city of chicago on a regular basis um at the time, I was working for uh, a couple of uh, gentlemen who, who operated, reopened the theater in the 80s and, and were operating it. And they were opposed to the idea of playing the Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight because of the mess it created. Um, and I eventually convinced them that it was worth doing. And so ever since then, um, yeah, we play it on a regular basis. Uh, it, um,
0: was it always once a month? Or did oh, we more? Did we show or less. It more?
2: Yeah, more. Well, never more, except around Halloween. Okay. Um, I think it's always so it's been, been, been on a regular monthly for basis. For
0: 20 some years, it's been pretty consistent that Rocky Horror right. has played the music box once a month. Yeah. And the mess hasn't changed. and I can tell you that well, <laughs> from, from the front of house perspective. I
2: mean, one of the things we did, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but now um, Midnight Madness, the theatrical troupe that shadow casts um, the film, provide. Um, bags, right? A props, Correct. and so Correct. now we have kind of officially sanctioned uh, uh, props, as opposed to the old days when you know anything went, and people could bring toast, and you, you know, and then they'd spray the water during the uh, the rainstorm, and you'd ha- you'd be picking up wet toast uh, at the end of each performance. So, um, so the mess that's has gotten less, le- less messy. I but hope, but
0: we still have messes. I'll just right. Tell I'm, you sure,
2: that. I'm sure. I'm uh, um,
0: sure. Well, there you go. the The origins of the Room and Rocky. Well. That's the origin of Rocky right. in the room. the room. You brought the room in, what, yeah, 10 years ago? Gosh.
2: Um, More than that? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm trying to remember how we became aware of it. And it, this was obviously way before it became a phenomenon. And I think I heard rumblings and, and maybe the trades or, or maybe just checking grosses around the country that there was this film playing in L.A. at midnight that just was continually doing business. And so um, it got on my radar early on. Um, but I have to say, I think we first programmed it because we were contacted by Tommy Wiseau. Oh, um, the man himself. Yeah, well, actually, I should or say his, his assistant, John. Or his fake assistant. Yeah, the admin, uh, John. Um, Which and, now I think he is a real assistant in general, but, yeah. but
0: Johnny was never real.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah. That's just so, that's just the...
0: the uh, put that into the, the mythos of Tommy Wiseau because mm. there is one that could fill a void.
2: Yeah. And right after we... we programmed it, I immediately started to regret it because in the weeks leading up to um, the film playing, we would get constant emails or phone calls from John. I don't think about phone calls to come to think of it, but no, emails from John. emails. That's he never right. calls.
0: Because how is he going to disguise right. his voice?
2: Um, with, with kind of everything we were doing wrong. Like, you need to send us a picture of the front of the theater that shows us that you have our poster clearly displayed. Um, that was one example. But there were all sorts of things like that. Uh, you know, the t- w- tickets weren't on sale the way he wanted it on sale, and et cetera. He was very high maintenance. Um, He's, uh, he still
0: is, but yeah, now only right. when he is in attendance. Right. The reg- the, he doesn't do that anymore on our monthly screenings, but when he comes to town, and in in, in addition to the lead up to when he comes to town he really gets
2: uh, it, down in the weeds, and it's mm-hmm. annoying. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, he's a lot to handle.
2: He is. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, but um, so we played it then, and we've played it, as you say, consistently ever since then on a monthly basis, and um, it's just a phenomenon. Uh, you know, What else is there to say? Spoons. Was, was there an immediate reaction the first time you showed it, or did the, the audience for it build over I think it, it, it definitely build, built um, over the years. Um, it'd be interesting to go back and look at it's first performance and how it did. We brought him to Chicago probably within the first year that we started playing it and I think that really kind of started the the move to um to cult phenomenon in Chicago. Um
0: well yeah, I mean meeting this dude, you just you're like, "Oh, then you talk about it." Mm-hmm. You just <laughs> there's nothing else you could do but talk about Tommy when you are in a room with the man. Uh it's just too much. Uh he's he's really yeah, whatever. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Thank you for telling us the <laughs> sure. origins. Um, on Saturday at 11.30, Silent Cinema, our monthly silent cinema, is going to present a film called The Lighthouse, which Kyle Westfall booked. So Kyle, tell us a little about it.
1: Yeah, so Lighthouse Keepers, as Ryan said, is part of the monthly presentation um, that we've been doing now for five or six years. Uh, I think it's officially in its sixth year. Okay, yeah. So, um, you know, as many people who patronize the music box, uh, but maybe don't see the silent cinema program, no, uh, we have a house organist. I think we're the only theater in Chicago uh, with a house organist, Dennis Scott. And you hear him on weekends uh, between shows in the afternoon and evening, or if you go to the Christmas shows, he's the one uh, helping Santa in the sing-along. And a few years ago, uh, he talked to the general manager and and Brian and said, you know, it would be really great since we have 35 millimeter and since we can do variable speed and since we can show things full aperture without the image being cut off. And since we have the organ, it only makes sense to to do a a monthly silent program. Uh, And then about a year ago, um, the Chicago Film Society, which I'm also um, affiliated with, started partnering with the music box to help program um that series which we started with uh last man on earth last november and so it, it's been a really good series because we're able I, I think in part because it's been around for so long and has an, uh, a, a, an established and consistent audience that you know uh, there are a lot of other um theaters uh, elsewhere uh that when they show silent films are kind of always showing the chestnuts the nosferatus and the cabinet of dr caligari's and Chaplin and keaton and everything and it's not that those films aren't great and shouldn't be seen but our audience has seen them and so a few times yeah and so um we're at a point where um when dance and i get together with and with ryan and with the rest of chicago film society and say hey we've got a really interesting prospect of a film that's super obscure that people aren't going to have been able to see any other way uh you know, generally, we've gotten a green light on that. So Lighthouse Keepers came about because our friends at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival were bringing this film out. Uh, and funnily enough, it, it's a it's a French film from 1929 directed by Jean Melon but the only print that we know of is in Japan at the National Film Archive of Japan. And when you come on Saturday and see this print, it, it's actually a, a very strange, one-of-a-kind object. It, it has... Um, It's basically a trilingual uh, version of the film. It has intertitles in English and French, and then um, Japanese subtitles burned in along the side. (laughs) So whichever language you choose to read it in uh, will will serve that need. Um, But in any case, this is just a a beautifully made um, poetic film shot in Brittany, and it survives in in this tinted and toned print that, you know, I, I think if you've only seen silent films on television or in kind of dupy black and white copies uh lighthouse keepers is is really an eye opener just aesthetically speaking and 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 physically speaking just the quality of of the print that we have so uh this is you know a, as i said a a fairly obscure film uh jean Gremillon had a bit of a revival a few years ago when the criterion collection put out a box set of his films from the 1940s under their eclipse label um including Remorks and um, Le Ciel et Avou, But his, his earlier silent films are generally very, very difficult to see and are only really available in archival 35 prints. So when we knew that the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, uh, which occurs the um, uh, at the end of, of May, beginning of June, was going to be bringing the print out for their festival, uh, we talked to them and said, you know, as a lot of uh, archives and and cinematechs and and repertory houses do. Hey, can we find a way to kind of take advantage of this? Split the shipping costs since the print is being imported uh, from Japan. And luckily, it all worked out. Uh, there was a lot of paperwork that Brian uh, helped with and uh, Diane also helped with, um, and we're just lucky to be able to have it. Um, so it, it's a really rare and and beautifully uh, photographed film uh, that I hope people come out for. And that is Saturday at 1130 a.m., one show only.
0: Yeah, it does sound uh, unique. I've never seen a film in three languages. Um, I don't think I could read them in all three. I'll just read them in English. But uh, I think that by itself is really unique. But also coming from Japan just is a wild place to find a film and exciting to see. Have you seen it, Brian? I have not. Okay. Well, I guess Brian and I will have to go and experience this wonder of a film that Kyle suggests. Um, Well, Kyle, let's keep you talking because uh, the other matinee on Sunday is a continuation of the Curtiz Matinee series, which you programmed. It's called Kennel Murders. Uh, What's this one about?
1: Yeah, so we've been running the Curtiz series um, since the beginning of June. Uh, This actually came about because our friend Alan K. Rohde, who a lot of you know, from Noir City, which he co-hosts annually with Eddie Muller, uh, Alan had just published a, a biography of Curtis, and it was really the first biography of Michael Curtiz. There, there were some scattered books that were kind of critical studies of his career, but in terms of you know a, a, a look at his life um, from Europe to America and the you know 170 something films he made and and how he fit into the Hollywood system, which he exemplified in many respects. Um, it was really a, a pioneering study. So he approached us and and suggested, hey, you know, I have this book. It would be great if you could do a series. And we went back and forth for a while about the films and the form it would take. And so he was out here at the beginning of June presenting four films and signing his book. And then we basically thought, you know, it would be great if we could continue it in our matinee slot and that people who bought the book, uh, you know, could kind of follow along and explore some of his films and you know luckily um with this as matinee series go there's a lot to choose from because as i said he he made uh many many dozens of films um not all of them were available but uh in putting the series together i I think the objective was really to show the breadth of his work Um, so we have the film noir's like Mildred Pierce. We have kind of the the stone-cold classics like Casablanca um, and the swashbuckling films like Adventures of Robin Hood and The Seahawk. Uh, But then we've also tried to show kind of the other facets of his career. So he also made westerns. So we showed Virginia City. Uh, Not many of you showed up for Virginia City, but we'll we'll leave that aside. Um, And he also, you know, made horror films like Dr. X, Uh, and he made detective films and mystery films like The Kennel Murder Case, which is what we're showing this weekend on Sunday at 11.30. And, of course, Kennel Murder Case is also a a pre-code film. He worked very extensively at Warner Brothers in that era when, uh, you know, the censors were asleep or distracted, basically, Um, turning out, you know, at sometimes as many as seven films a year, working at a really furious clip, and so I, I really wanted to have, uh, again, a representative sample of that work as well. So we showed Mad Detective, we are showing Kennel Murder Case, um, and, and we showed Dr. X, which is also um, a, a pre-code. And so in the case of Kennel Murder Case, I, I think what's interesting about that is the way that it, at least viewed now, fits into a lot of trends that, that we talk about still in cinema. Um, We complain about franchise films, we complain about sequels, we complain about, like, there's no original anything anymore. And I think that in the 1930s, audiences, you know, could have complained about the same things. Um, So, Kennel Murder Case is a a Philo Vance mystery. And so that's, um, there was a, a series of mystery novels by S.S. Van Dyne. And already, by the time um, of Kennel Murder Case, there were, by my count, at least four, uh, four and a half, depending on how you count, uh, Philo Vance movies just made in the past four years before this. Um, The series started at Paramount with William Powell as Philo Vance. So there was Canary Murder Case uh, in 1929, The Green Murder Case, also uh, William Powell in the same year, and then The Benson Murder Case the year after that. So audiences, you know, were very familiar with this character, and and there would have been some justice in saying, can't we have something different? Um, There was something different in 1930. Um, The series moved over to MGM, and Basil Rathbone was recast as SS Van Dyne, and for whatever reason, that just was not as popular. And so Kennel Murder Case, when it comes along in 1933, is kind of a return to form, as it were, where the actor who had really, um, you know, established this character for American audiences, was able to reinterpret him under a new director and a new studio at Warner Brothers. And it's very typical of the Warner Brothers pre-code style, very fast, um, relentless in its pacing. I think it's no more than 70 minutes or so. Um, and really set a template uh, for the work that Powell would do uh, you know, in other films, like the Thin Man series, and also other films with Curtiz, like Private Detective 62. Um, One reason that we're especially excited to see this um, on Sunday is we do have a 35 print from the studio. And this is a film that has long been in the public domain. So um, not so much anymore because there's now a good DVD of it. But for years in in the 90s and 2000s, if you were looking to see this film, you you could get a video yesteryear or Tiki video copy that looked like someone had recorded it with their camcorder off the wall. because there was, you know, really no nothing stopping people from releasing their own version of it, um, but seeing the studio's 35 print, I think, is, you know, kind of by definition the best you're ever going to see the film. Uh, so excited to present that, and then the series is continuing um, for two more films. Uh, the Sunday after this coming one, uh, July 29th, we have a, a, another very rare film, Noah's Ark, from UCLA Film and Television Archives. Um, which was kind of Curtiz's big-budget uh, Warner Brothers film at the climax of the silent era, and then the series wraps up on August 4th and 5th with Joan Crawford and Flamingo Road. So hopefully by the end of it, um, you know, I, the hope is that people, again, see the breadth of Curtis's career, but also you know, hopefully with Alan's book in hand, are able to kind of trace their own path because Curtiz is is endless as a filmmaker. And and don't Uh,
0: you worry, Alan is coming back for Noir City August 17th to the 23rd. So if you didn't get your fill of Curtiz, you can just chat up Alan, because he just hangs out at the theater the whole time, which is fantastic. Um, Thank you for that description and uh, why we should see the movie. I think it sounds great. Um, And I hope some of you come out on Sunday at 11.30. Uh, One last thing to talk about on this week's shows is the continuation of the Robin Williams series. Boy, you guys really like Robin Williams, and I'm very happy about that, because I love him. Um, and I mean to say that by the a turnout that we have seen for, for the film so far. Uh, on the uh, Tuesday, July 24th at 7 p.m., we have the fourth film in the series, which is called World's Greatest Dad. It is dark and it's comic, uh, and its I think it's fantastic. Um, I don't think it's for everybody. <laughs> uh, it's very different than Aladdin. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think you should see it if you get a chance to, because um, it's just showing a, a different side of Robin and what he can do in more of a deadpan. Um, uh, way of, of uh, acting and um, and it, you know for us we really wanted to show it because you know, you have to show a lot of different sides of Robin when you're doing a Robin Williams series even if it's just five films so I do hope that you come out on Tuesday at 7pm for The World's Greatest Dad
1: so, so for those so we, we've shown Aladdin and Mrs. Doubtfire already and
0: then uh, well tonight is uh Uh, Fisher King, but uh, the podcast won't come out until tomorrow, so we don't know exactly how tonight will do, but Aladdin and um, Mrs. Doubtfire were huge audiences, and just the most fun audiences. I love watching with all of you who come out. It's like 400, 500 people, and just enjoying the movie together.
1: So, I mean, anecdotally, is it kids, or people who saw them as kids, Uh, or now There are some kids
0: in the audience, for sure, but most of them are people who saw them as kids.
1: Okay. Yeah. So
0: it's like like 20s and 30s, something. No, no. Don't bring your kids to world's greatest dad, please. Um, Just you come. (laughs) Um, Okay. Um, so advanced ticket notice would be the next section, which I'm not gonna spend any time on because I wanna spend more time talking to Brian about some history of the programming and his involvement with the Music Box Theater. Um, but I will say that if you uh, didn't listen last time, um, Noir City uh, is up and the passes are on sale and the single tickets will be up on sale by the end of the week. Uh, Music Box of Horrors uh, passes are on sale. Uh, 70 millimeter passes and individual tickets will be on sale very soon. Um, probably not this week, but. Some Sometime in the coming weeks, um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot to check out there. Um, I think you're going to love the Noir City lineup. I'll find time to talk about it in the coming weeks. Um, but let's jump into this old theater. And when we talk about this old theater, we can talk about stories from this old theater. You know, we've brought in the ghost stories. We've talked about the architecture. We've talked about people's experiences. Um, we can also talk about a bits of the history of how we worked the place and or what we're working on with the place. So. Um, you know, I think when we when we have Brian on, which I've have alluded to so many times, um, Brian can talk about both music box films and the theater. But I'm I'm just going to ask Brian to talk about the history of programming the theater and you know sort of where you were when you when you got the job and kind of go on from there with the conversation. So, Brian, how did you get the job <laughs> programming the the music box theater back in the '90s?
2: Uh, yeah, well. Um, I guess it started um with the Chicago International Film Festival. I was working there for several years as the director of competitive competitions, um, I think was the title. And um and one of the jobs I had during the festival was to be kind of site manager. And at that time uh the music box theater was one of the venues that the film festival used regularly. And so over the years I got to know um, the operators of the Music Box Theater and around you know after a year or two after I met them um, I learned that their current program director was getting ready to leave and so I applied and uh, yeah I got the job I started in uh, well a long time ago I think 1995 so been doing this for 23 years Um, and uh, yeah that's how I got my start at the Music Box. And,
0: okay, so let's go back to 95. Um, what, like, what was the programming like in 95?
2: Yeah. Well, maybe I'll even go farther back than that. Sure, um, go farther when, back. When uh, the original two guys that I worked for, Bob and Chris, um, they reopened the theater in the early 80s. Have, has this was, been covered already? In the, well, in I,
0: the... Uh, No, I just said we reopened with a different format. Right. You know, but I, I can't remember if it was exactly 82 or 83 when yeah, we reopened. Yeah, all right. Probably well, late 82 or early 83. Had,
1: had it been just closed before then? It ban, had been or closed.
0: It well, it had gone through multiple tenants. Um, that is, the people who did not own it but ran it as a business. Uh, and then it did officially close, I think, for a short amount of time right. when Bob and Chris uh, basically slapped some new paint, paint on the walls, cleaned it up a little bit, um, you know, scrubbed it up cleaned it up, that kind of thing, um, and prepared it to reopen as a uh, solely repertory house.
2: Repertory house, yeah. Yeah, that was their original idea. And so I think the first program they did um, was a Charlie Chaplin uh, retrospective, which was very popular and did very well. Um, Yeah, back then the programming style was uh, repertory programming, and that meant that there would be a different double feature of... Usually, classic Hollywood films um, that would rotate Um, and so every day you'd have a different double feature usually they'd be paired thematically or or based on uh, the director or the um, an actor that was starring in it Um, and so yeah as I say when they first opened they got a lot of publicity and they they began showing Charlie Chaplin films and so the the lines they used to say were you know around the block people were so excited about this new uh, business in Chicago Um, but um, the business slowed down pretty quickly because this is about the time when um, home video was more and more uh, common. And so suddenly...
0: Yeah, I think these... the rise of VHS you know, right. and, video, and video rental stores. Right. And
2: cable TV as yeah, well. And cable. Um, and so um, now people had the opportunity to see these films at home. And so the idea of going to a theater and paying to see it was less attractive Um, and so it became clear that they needed to rethink the programming and about that time they hired a their first director of programming which was a man named Sandy Chaney Um, and he um, actually at the time worked at a a a library a Films Inc um, which handled uh, non-theatrical rights for a lot of studio product and so they got to know Sandy because they would rent movies from him and He recognized that there were all these great films opening in major cities like New York, especially New York or LA um, first-run new art house foreign language uh, documentary um, That had a developed an audience in New York, but wasn't making it into Chicago and so he had suggested that they um, mix up their programming a little bit and, and try some first run stuff. Um, and, and that was what they did and um, it became, it kind of for the most part took over the programming. Um, now to keep true to the origins of, of the business, um, they kept the, uh, the repertory programming but moved it to weekend matinees where we continue to place it to this day. And and Midnight's too, right? And Midnight's as well, yeah. So, you know, when I took over, kind of the broad idea of what The Music Box was and what kind of films they would program had already been established. Be a combination of uh, specialized uh, foreign language films and documentaries, uh, newer titles, um, perhaps restorations of classic films, um, thematic repertory programming, cult movies at midnight. and so that was kind of what I inherited in, in 1995. And so over the years, we just kind of, I tried to continue with that tradition, but expanded. Um, and what I mean by that is um, uh, make even greater effort to keep the programming eclectic, um, to, to make sure that There was always a a wide variety of of films playing at any one time or or within any one calendar um, so that a number of different audiences would always be looking to the calendar to see a film that was right for them. Um, Also um, we expanded the events that we did. Um, Now when I when I began uh, yeah we already were uh, actually I, I just told the story of Rocky Horror Picture Show so so finding things like that uh, and adding it to the mix is something that I tried really hard to do but at that
0: time we the was the only event cinema or events ventized screening uh the Christmas shows yeah yeah so that was the only stuff so then you brought in
2: Rocky Horror what else did you bring in um, yeah. Well, we. What else? It's so many events. Uh, the sing-along sound of music um, was something, that, and I, you know, can't obviously take credit for that phenomenon. But we had heard about it. Um, it became a hit in England, and so um, I went to a film festival and met with the, the producer of the traveling tour and convinced him to bring it to the music box. Um, and did you fun. originally
0: do it uh, Thanksgiving weekend? No. Okay. No. So it mo- it's moved right. around a little bit. Yeah. It okay. was.
2: Uh, I think we first played it for two weeks, and it was a you know a massive hit, and then, um, yeah, we recognized that this had to become a staple in our programming, a perennial, something we returned to over and over again. And so, uh, I landed on the idea of doing it over Thanksgiving weekend. Um, but you know, w- over the years, we've added so many different events. Um, uh, our 24-hour uh, horror movie marathon um, was something that we added. Gosh, how many years ago? Um, um, 14 or 15. Yeah.
0: I can't remember the exact year that it started. Yeah. I want to say it's this is the 14th year.
2: Right. Uh, the Noir Fest was another thing that's, uh, you know, and I, which is celebrating uh, its 10th anniversary. Right. And uh, you know, I can list a lot of different things, but I think what's important to recognize is that I, I don't want to take credit for these things because. I guess the one thing I did was seek out other partners and find other, you know, uh, work with other groups, other organizations, other theaters, find out what's working for them, and then bring it to um, to the Music Box. I mean the the Noir Fest is an interesting uh, example. Um, I got to know a a movie scholar, uh, Foster Hirsch uh, was his name, and um, gee, he once, he came to us a long time ago and Proposed the idea of of showing a classic film with uh, with a star in attendance. I don't know who it was, frankly. It might have been um, Farley Granger, maybe with um, with uh, the Hitchcock film *Strangers on a Train*. Whatever. You know, he he had written a book, sort of like what happened um, with um, the Curtiz. Um He was going on a, on a um, a book tour and wanted to do an event at the Music Box, and so through him. We started talking, and he said, well, you know, they do, I'm part of the board that does a a noir film festival every year, Noir City, and it's only in San Francisco right now. And the guys I work with have been a little bit reluctant to kind of tour uh, that idea or that concept, Um, but, you know, I think it would be right for the Music Box. And so that began um, our annual noir festival. uh, the 24-hour horror movie marathon was actually the idea of one of our staff members who had attended similar events over the years and really thought we needed one at the music box. Um, but there are others. You know, our you know our annual Valentine's Day uh, programming. Or Casablanca or we, sing-along right. or
0: our uh, interactive screenings of Princess exactly. Bride.
2: It, right, and things like that um, or Mother's Day. Um, which, so, which was
0: a mother, mother's mummy dearest, which we had done this time. But then we changed it over to Mamma Mia because people just love to sing along
2: mm-hmm. uh, with films. Mm-hmm. Um, seventy millimeter is another example. Um, although we had the equipment to play seventy millimeter, we hadn't; they hadn't in years. And wait, wait.
0: When you started, you had the equipment to play seventy in '95. Had,
2: uh, well, you know, I, I, as I recall, we had the equipment, but it just hadn't been used. Oh, okay. Um, and this was in, I think, around two thousand two. Um, and people were talking about the re-release of 2001, and you're saying why was that in 2002? Well, as I recall, Warner Brothers. kind of, for whatever reason, were a little behind the uh, the eight ball there, and so the re-releasing 2001 in 70 millimeter happened in 2002. And when I heard about this, I again talked to the owners and said, you know, we have the equipment. Why aren't we Why aren't we doing this? And so. They tuned everything up, and um, and we played it for a week or two weeks. And and was it uh, just as successful back in two thousand? It was yeah, okay. Yeah. So
0: it's just always a it's a perennial right. film, right?
2: Right. Yeah. So you know to kind of wrap up. I mean, I just I've just tried to keep the programming interesting and eclectic, uh, trying to make sure it appeals to many different audiences, and continually looking for for new events, um, partnering with local organizations. Um, cultural institutions to co-present events um finding annual uh, events and and you know being consistent making sure they happen at the same time every year so that audiences know to look for it um you know we learned that lesson obviously from the christmas show that we, because it's always at christmas time people just knew it was going to happen and it became a, tr- a tradition uh for families and so we've always looked for other things that we can make a tradition um, for Chicago audiences um, and I guess the other thing I'd say back to uh, you know making sure it was uh, the programming is eclectic and appeals to many different audiences I've always tried to to make an effort to make sure we were developing the next generation of moviegoers um, you know when I when I started and as I say in the 80s we showed a lot of um, primarily foreign language films and documentaries that appealed to an, an older uh, more intellectual uh, audience, um, not that our audience isn 't intellectual, but you know it was uh, people started to worry that that generation, people who like to see foreign language films was was aging and and less likely to to go to a movie theater and so the dilemma became how do we how do we keep ourselves relevant? how do we keep young people coming in how do we make how do we convince them that um, they should come to the music box and embrace it and make it their theater. And so, um, yeah, we're always looking for events and films that will appeal to a younger audience without neglecting um, the older audience, too. And, and that's uh, striking that balance between uh, a film that will appeal to an older uh, audience or or an audience that really cares about contemporary world cinema and they want to see what won the top award it can, even if it's very long and very slow and very cerebral, making sure they um, visit the music box as much as, you know, the college kid who wants to see the room at midnight for the 20th time. Yeah,
0: no, I, I think you've you've summarized in words, what, what we do. And, uh, yeah, I feel like you've been pretty successful with that. So, uh, so yeah, thanks for, for doing this for so long and keeping, keeping this tradition alive at the theater and finally being on the podcast. I feel like everybody's (laughs) been like, who is this Brian? When is he going to come on? Yeah. Um, and, well, we're going to have to have you come back on and talk about the history of Music Box Films okay. and some of that kind of stuff, so we'll find a time that works uh, to get you back on, maybe before we open a Music Box Films release at the theater, which we've done in the past, and Kyle's talked about. Um, so we'll have to get you back on for that. Let's do a quick review of what's uh, what we got. Coming up, we've got uh, the film The King opening on July 20th. Our midnights on Friday are The Room, and on Saturday, Rocky Horror Picture Show with the Shadowcast, Silent Cinema, The Lighthouse Keepers, is coming on Saturday at 11.30 a.m., July 20th, that is. The Curtiz Matinee series continues with Kennel Murder Case on Sunday at 11.30 a.m., that's July 21st. Robin Williams' film series continues with World's Greatest Dad on Tuesday, July 24th at 7 p.m. And as always, we love to hear from you. Uh, We like your reviews. You can rate us. You can send me an email. You can send other people an email. Um, It's just great to get a little feedback from all of you listeners. Um, And Brian kyle thank you for coming on thank Thank you. you thank you all right listeners we'll see you next week